If you're hearing my voice right now, chances are you're a pretty connected person. You might even be listening to this on your smartphone. Being super connected is great, right until it's not. Today, how to improve the quality of your connectedness with an expert from the Center for Creative Leadership. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 132. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. This is a weekly coaching show to help us all be better leaders through improved communication, human relations, and personal productivity. And I'm so glad that you're back joining us this week because I have today a guest who I know is going to provide some wonderful perspective for all of us on how we stay connected to our work, but also uh, when are we overdoing it? And Jennifer Deal is with the Center for Creative Leadership. She is my guest today, and she is the author of an article called Always on Never Done. And the subtitle is what caught my attention originally when I received this from a community member. And the subtitle is Don't Blame the Smartphone. We are all uh, very used to blaming technology for keeping us so connected, but there's a lot that we can do for ourselves as leaders, but also just as importantly, if not more so, things that we can do for our team as far as setting expectations on how we stay connected to the workplace and when it's appropriate to turn things off. Jennifer, I am so glad that you're here. Welcome to Coaching for Leaders. Thank you for having me. Well, I think before we start, it may make sense for us to spend a few minutes talking about the Center for Creative Leadership, CCL, as it's often referred to. And I know the mission of CCL is to help leaders improve. Uh, Jennifer, I have just heard wonderful things about CCL over the years. I've had many folks in our community who have said wonderful things about your organization and about the work that CCL does. And I was wondering if maybe before we get into the article and some of the research you've done, if you could just say a little bit about CCL and how you uh, how you serve the organization too. Thanks. Yeah, it's, I'm glad to hear that you've heard such good things. Uh, CCL is a nonprofit educational institution, so we're not a consulting firm. Um, and my job at CCL is to discover new information that helps leaders improve at work, basically makes their world a better place. Um, and that's, that's what I've been doing at CCL for 17 years now, believe it or not. Fan. In one organization for 17 years. I'm sure that's a shock to everybody. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, and so, so really, when I'm doing research, I'm doing research to figure out, in, in, in conjunction with CCL's mission, to figure out information that really helps leaders. In, in my case, it isn't about selling something. It's about trying to understand the details of leaders' lives and their work, um, in a way that helps them get a better handle on what they're doing so they can improve. Fantastic. Well, let's definitely spend some time doing that here today then and see if we can all learn something that through your discoveries and your research. And uh, and as we talk about this article, Always On, Never Done, um, I'm curious of just how this topic came up and how you reached out to people and who was surveyed. And uh, maybe if you can set the context for us. And I know you mentioned there was a story that came out of this too. Yeah, yeah. I actually, this research started because I realized that I was never not working. And at least it seemed to me like every hour of every day, 
I was doing something for work mm. and I was talking to friends and I realized they were doing the same things. And then I happened to be at a friend's 40th birthday party and somebody actually had to go into another room and close the door to take an hour long conference call uh, on a Saturday Wow! <laughs> with another country in the middle of a big party. And so we, we started talking and and sort of around, around a table, you know, with glasses of wine and figuring out, sort of hearing people talk about their lives. And I said, okay, this has struck me. What strikes you all? And what they all said was basically that they were having the same experience I was, that they were never not working, that they were taking calls at strange hours, leaving parties, that they felt like they were never done with work. Um, but they were always on no matter where they were. And we started talking a little bit about the history of it. And people basically said that, that they believed the switch for them had happened when their organizations had started having them carry smartphones. Mm. Um, the, the one person in the group who actually refuses to carry a smartphone said she didn't feel like she was always on. But everybody else, and these are all these are all people in in similar similar types of jobs. Um, they're global jobs, they're tech jobs, they're management jobs. Yeah. They all felt felt pretty much the same way. And so I started thinking, you know, is it is it actually the fault of tech fault of technology? Do we actually hate our smartphones? Because I heard a lot of blaming of the smartphone. Uh, is that really what's going on? And so I decided that it was given given that pretty much everyone I know is living this life. Yeah. It was a useful thing to look into. Uh, so I went out and found a sample, partially a CCL sample. We have, we have people who are willing to fill out surveys for us and partially a sample through my personal network um, and ended up with a lot of uh, executive, executives, managers, and professionals. I call them EMPs uh, who filled it out. We ended up with 483 responses. Complete oh, wow. response. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was very pleased. I'm, I, I'm sort of a data person. So the larger the sample, the better. Um, and this, this seemed adequate for what, what we were trying to do, the, the information we were trying to get at. Fantastic. So what did you find as you uh, analyzed the data and looked at what people had said about some of the questions? Well, we found out, first of all, that when you actually, when you actually asked people when they started answering email in the morning, and when they stopped answering email in the evening and how much work they did on the weekends that on average people were reporting about 72 hours a week connected to the workplace. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the Bureau of Labor Statistics reports a 43 hour work week. Um, on average. And the, the survey that I run for CCL called the World Leadership Survey, which everyone is welcome to participate in, you can find it on our website. Um, we actually find a 50-hour work week. But when you actually ask people the details of precisely when they start answering emails and stop answering emails, people said they were connected to work about 13 and a half hours a day, five days a week. Hmm. Interesting. Which is a lot of time. It is a lot of time. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And well, that, this actually brings up a question. And I know you looked at this in your analysis as well, too, is it, I know sometimes the argument is used and I, I've even made this argument with myself as well. You know, 
yeah, I was answering email late, but I took time during the day maybe to work on some personal tasks or it wasn't continuous time that I was working or we're kind of being this, you know, in the work zone, out of the work mode, you know, throughout the day. And so um, what did you find when you asked people about that or did some analysis around that? Well, we actually asked people whether or not they did personal tasks during work hours. Um, for that exact reason, because there's a lot of justification that goes on. Um, and you sort of presume when you're making those justifications that the people who aren't doing work tasks outside of work hours are not doing personal tasks during work hours. And what we found was that regardless of whether or not you carry a smartphone, you say you do personal tasks during work hours. Hmm. Interesting. So, so, so it's not the personal tasks necessarily. It's actually the amount of time of people who are, are carrying those devices. The timing is actually substantially more. Yes. Interesting. Interesting. I'm curious, you know, is that something that's driven by workplace culture and managers or is that something that is it just our own desire to want to stay connected and, and work ethics and maybe even guilt for some of us if we see that email there at 10 o'clock at night, we feel like we need to respond immediately? I think it's a combination of things. Uh, I think part of it has to do with competition. Uh, everyone wants to be seen, well, most people I know, want to be seen as being hard workers and dedicated and committed and you want to, you want to move up and get, get good assignments and you do that partly by showing you're a really hard worker, which means that you're on a lot. You're available whenever it's needed. You're willing to do whatever it takes. So I think, I think that's part of it. Um, part of it is that the people in charge get used to having answers whenever they want them. Um, part of it is that, you know, organizations get used to having you do other things during the day and then pick up the slack in the evening. Part of it is the global nature of a lot of organizations now. Um, you know, if you're working, as I do, with people in Europe and in Asia, you have to get up early in the morning to answer the emails from Europe because that's when they're in the office and you have to do things in the evening uh, because that's when people in Asia are in the office. Um, so there's, there's a lot of sort of man that I see a lot of managing of international time zones as being part of the issue. Um, so it, it all sort of, it all sort of works together. I know that one of the justifications I give myself and, and talking to, talking to people I, I interviewed, they, they do it as well, is it's, I actually feel it's easier on me if I answer when I see the email because then I don't have it hanging over me. Mm. I, I honestly, it's, it's a choice. You know, I make, I make the choice to answer the email then rather than answer it the next day because I believe sort of in the, in the larger scope of how I do my work, I will be more productive and I will get more done and the people around me will be more productive and everything will just work better. And I'll be less concerned about, you know, urgency in the morning because I will have already dealt with it the night before. Yeah, it is really interesting to me, uh, as I've talked to people, how how all of us have our own system for email. And we've talked about this on the show a bit, too. And it, it's there is no one right way to do it. 
it's the how how is it going to work for me and and make me feel comfortable with how I interact with people. So I, I think that's really yeah. interesting that that dude and I, I find that as well too if I let an email sit, it just hangs over my head. So um I and I'm and I'm curious about one of the things you mentioned a moment ago too is just the how organizations have started to, whether intentionally or not, you know, utilize time during the quote unquote normal workday for meetings and other interactions and then often work you know, even if not said explicitly, almost expected to handle email and other times. And you you identify this as as an as one of the bigger offenses that organizations um, may want to look at. It's just the number of meetings. And I, I'm really fascinated, and we'll put a link to your article here in the show notes, but I'm really fascinated by some of the graphics you have in the article of just mapping out the time that some of the executives and uh, managers are expected to be in meetings on a on a weekly basis. And when you look at that chart, it is it is pretty daunting of like, when do you do other work <laughs> that is not involved with meetings? And, um, and I'm wondering if you could say something about that, either any advice you would have for new leaders on how to handle that dynamic or folks who really do have the ability to influence their organizations and just the number of meetings and involvement that is, is had on a regular basis. Yeah, it's it's a real issue, and it was one of the one of the biggest complaints, as, as you can see in the article, that, that I heard from people. Because what would happen is they would be in meetings. I mean, you can see in the graphic that sometimes the same person was scheduled in two or three meetings simultaneously, which obviously isn't possible. Yeah. Though, though I actually know one person who has done two meetings virtually simultaneously. She actually had one phone on each ear. <laughs> and you have to imagine that they're not that your your ability to process what's going on is not super great. <laughs> yeah, her presence was there, but her mind wasn't yeah, <laughs> either. Yeah. But she had to be there because her presence was required. And this is what we see a lot, um, and what a lot of managers and executives complained about. Um, that what would happen is they would be requested at a meeting, and because of the way the request came through, they would feel like they had to go. And they would get there and they would realize that there was absolutely no reason for them to be in this meeting. Mm. But then they're stuck. They can't leave because in the organizational culture, that's bad manners. Right. And so people who are in positions of authority have or, or who are planning the meetings can make a lot of choices to help with this. You can be very explicit about who needs to be in the meeting and why. And tell everybody else who's being informed about the meeting that it's voluntary, that they don't actually have to be there. You can choose to only invite the people who have to be there um, and, and really be explicit about why. If you've been invited to a meeting and you don't know why, you can actually ask the meeting organizer, what precisely is my role in this meeting? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, organizational use of time because Frankly, everybody's time costs money Mm, and you're not being a good steward of the organizational resources if your time is being wasted. I really like that perspective because it it really puts some of that onus back on us as an individual leader to not just be thinking about, you know, do I want to go to this meeting or not, but is this a good time? Is this a good investment of the organization's resources and the salary and the other, the, 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 uh, opportunity cost of what I could else be do, otherwise be doing for the organization for me to sit in this meeting for the next hour, hour and a half, 
Um, I, exactly. I really, I really like that perspective. And I'm curious, Jennifer, for leaders you've worked with that have done that effectively, what have you found that's worked as far as communicating that expectation? Is it as, is it as simple as um, being detailed in a meeting notice on some of those things you just mentioned, or are there other things they've done in addition as far as communicating, um, you know, the the right people to be in the meeting and whether something could be voluntary or not? Well, it's really it's really about setting up the agenda clearly um, and making sure that people feel that they can come and talk to you if they have questions. Mm. Uh, so a lot of the time, a lot of time, some of the time what I see happen is that the executive isn't the one setting up the agenda, someone else's. And so there's some lack of clarity in the instruction between the, the executive who's calling the meeting and the person who's actually setting it up. So, so it's really helpful if people can be very explicit about, I need John here for this reason, Jane here for this reason, Susie here for that reason, and Harold here for this reason, um, and being very explicit about it. Now, unfortunately, what often happens is there are often a lot of, there's often a lot of politics around meetings because people, as I'm sure your listeners have seen, want to be seen in certain kinds of meetings. Of course. Um, for political reasons. Uh, and that's a choice that they can make, but if they're not actually needed in the meeting, um, people should be aware of that as well. I, I love that but advice. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that's so great as far as just identifying that on the agenda up front. And then, of course, I think that second step is key of whoever's sending out that meeting information, that meeting notice, if it's not you, of being real clear to get that information across so that, you know, people may still choose to attend, but at least they know in advance what their role would be and why they're being asked to attend the meeting. Yes. Yes. A lot of what people talk to me about were meetings that were just not planned well, uh, disorganized, no agendas, uh, no roles, and that that, that wasted a lot of time. Um, there was also the meeting to plan the meeting. Mm, yeah been there, done that. <laughs> I hate those. Which caused much entertainment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when, when an executive actually showed up at a meeting and thought it was the meeting and found out it was the meeting to plan the meeting and said, okay, call me when it's the meeting and left. Mm. Um, but, that's, but that's a rare, I mean, in, from what I've seen, that's a rare person. Um, mostly what I hear are people sitting around in meetings, looking around and calculating how much that meeting is costing the organization. Yeah. Yeah. In cash. Well, and that's a really important calculation to make. And in fact, we talked about this in a show a few weeks ago of, you know, if you sit around and you have 10 executives in a room and you start adding up people's hourly <laughs> salaries to the organization, it's a pretty expensive use of time and it better be worth it. And and one of the things you mentioned as far as an offense here too in your article is just too many people being involved in decisions. And I'm wondering if you could say something about that and what prompted that as part of the as the article. Yes. Yes. That that was another primary complaint because uh, it, it, nobody knowing who can make the decision, who has the authority to make the decision or too many too many cooks in the kitchen in making a decision was something that people talked about really wasting their time. So if you have one person who's ultimately responsible for the decision, but 30 people who all have to weigh in, that takes a lot of time. And as organizations become progressively more matrixed uh, with more dotted line reporting relationships, more and more people 
are involved in decision making. And oftentimes nobody has, as they said in the Harvard Business Review article, nobody has the D. You know, who's, who, gets the bo- who gets to make the bottom line decision? Um, and it's a, constant, it's a constant issue amongst um, the people I spoke with. Mm. That they, they, they were not sure how to deal with because it's the people who are above them in the organization who have to make the decisions about who gets to make the decisions. With the leaders you've seen that have bridged that gap and been able to do that more effectively, what have you seen that's the kind of dialogue that works in their organization to get to move past that? Being very explicit with people about who has decision-making authority and who needs to be checked with. Uh, And the answer not being everybody, but being very clear on who the decision affects, how it affects them, and who has the authority to make the decision. Um, Quite, quite straightforwardly. Hmm. You say in the article, um, one of the time wasters is the what people describe as the intentional use of ambiguity as a management tool. C- could you tell me more about that? <laughs> yeah, sure. That, that one made me chuckle. It made me sort of <laughs> smile too when I looked at it. And I was like, hmm, I wonder what that means. <laughs> well, it, it, it made me laugh because I, I, I've seen it. I've seen and, and had people describe it done where the manager doesn't want to make a decision. And, and by manager, I mean somebody in charge of other people. It can be whatever level in the organization. The person doesn't want to make a decision because they don't want the responsibility for the decision. And so what they do is they use ambiguity to not have the decision tied to them. Now, what that results in is a bunch of people not doing anything because they haven't been, they don't know what to do um, because the manager hasn't made a deliberate, hasn't made a decision about what should be done. So they're using ambiguity. The, The manager is using ambiguity to avoid having to put a stake in the ground and make a decision and move on. Um, and, it was some. It's something that I've seen described a lot. Just this person just happened to be particularly pithy about how they said it. Oh, interesting. It's almost like to um, over, may perhaps overly simplify this, Jennifer. It's like when you're going back and forth on email with someone that you haven't talked to in a while, and there's the we should get together for coffee. Yeah, we should. And then it's sort of like. Not yeah. clear on who's, or, or, so are we actually scheduling this or are we not? <laughs> and that ambiguity, but but I've seen that happen in meetings too, where it's just not clear what who is taking the next step and what the next step is going to be. Yes, yes. And that's why it's it's good to have meetings that are clearly organized with agendas and with outcomes specified up front, uh, because then you can hope to avoid some of that because the truth is all the ambiguity and not making decisions just causes people to spin their wheels. Yeah. And, and what ends up happening is that the individuals bear the brunt of that in their personal time, because it, just because people have been spinning their wheels for however long doesn't mean that whatever it is doesn't have to be shipped on time. Mm. And then it and becomes so who's crisis. Gonna, mode who's going to make up the time? 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. It becomes the crisis mode later on. You know, there's so much value here, and I wish we had hours we could talk about it. Um, But, you know, after going through and having done this research and and hearing from almost 500 people, which is just a great sample size uh, to have gotten feedback on this, and, and I'm curious... What? How has it informed how you handle your day, Jennifer? Um, what are What do you do differently now, as far as just how you handle technology and interacting with others and meetings and different choices that you're making? Oh, I throw up my hands a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so you mean there's Truly. no magic bullet? <laughs> No, 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 no. There's no magic bullet. Um, actually, it's been, it's been really, it's been really fun for me because I get to talk to a lot of people and, and hear about what they're doing as well. Uh, it hasn't changed my tendency to start answering emails when I make up in the morning, which is somewhere between five and five thirty, and to stop answering them when I go to bed at night. Um, it, I haven't started stopping answering emails on weekends. I still do that. Um, I still carry the leash and connected all that waking hours. Um, what it has done is it's made me feel less guilty about doing other stuff. Um, it's made me feel less guilty about setting up boundaries around, you know, I'm going to do that tomorrow because I am. I've worked enough today. Mm, yeah. It's also... It's also caused me to think a lot about the question of who owns time. Because when we're hired, we're ostensibly hired for a 40-hour work week. And I, you and I, and probably most of the people listening, are working, are connected with work for far more than 40 hours a week. So it's caused me to really think about how I think about time and how I think about time in the office versus out of the office and how I treat ownership of my time. Hmm. And, you may- and it's also caused me to be very specific about agendas and meetings. Yeah. Oh, for sure. <laughs> I, I think for if, if there's one message coming out of this and, and this, this goes right along with what we talked about. We did a show on uh, meeting management a couple weeks ago. I mean, but you, you have absolutely, uh, you know, cemented the nail in that coffin as far as the importance of having an agenda in a meeting and being very specific about what's happening and what decisions are being made. And I, and I am really... Yeah, and if, and I, if someone invites me to a meeting I, and I'm not perfectly clear on why I'm supposed to be there, I ask. Yeah. And I turn, down, I turn down a lot of meetings that, I, that would be nice, but aren't necessary and aren't as high value as doing whatever else it is I need to be doing. I love it. And I, I love that you used the word guilt, too, uh, a, a few moments ago. And I, I'd like to ask you about that because I, I think that it is interesting that it is it is easy for a lot of us to blame the iPhone or the BlackBerry or whatever device or always being connected. And yet, um, it's always interesting to me how I, people will um, assign blame to those devices and yet will often carry them and use them even when their organization doesn't necessarily expect them to be connected and 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 how that does drive some of our behavior have you found a way around that and if and if so can you tell us <laughs> <laughs> well well in fact i'm one of those people who really is expected to be connected um because of dealing with the media so that's actually why i was given a smartphone got it so so that so that's part of my job um so 
I don't. Um, I have I know, I know someone who's an executive who who also for for because of her position is expected to carry and be connected all the time. And what she's done is she's set up her situation so that her direct reports only contact her if it's absolutely necessary. Uh, so she feels no guilt about not being at work, about being wherever she needs to be. Um, because she'll be contacted if there is a true emergency. And she feels absolutely no guilt about picking up the phone when she does or dealing with whatever, with whatever she needs to be dealing with because she knows that what she's being contacted about is actually really important for the business. Mm. Um, it's not a lot of random fire drills with people, people that people make up. These are, these are true emergencies where she is the person who has to deal with them. And she's come to that by how she's, how she's trained her people, her direct reports, and the other people who she interacts with um, about their prioritization of contact. Oh, interesting. And, and f- are you privy to some of the things that she's done that would be good wisdom for us and things we should think about when we're trying to communicate those expectations as well? Well, it's really, it's really, it's basically like meeting, meeting agendas, to tell you the truth. It's, it's making sure everybody is quite clear on what are the levels at which something has to reach before she is called and making sure that her people are competent to deal with everything up until that point and have the confidence to do so. Mm. Um, and, and really being, not being negative when she's called, but being quite clear about when the call was not necessary so that people learn over time um, when is appropriate to call and when isn't appropriate to call. At the same time, she models with her direct reports um, having good work-life balance. So she will send them home and tell them to turn off their phones and say, don't worry about anything. We will handle it until tomorrow. Mm. And she makes sure that her direct reports have that time away because People will say, you know, you're not working all of the 13 and a half hours. And they're right. You're not. But it's always a program running in the background. It's always something that's there. And that's part of what's tiring. Mm, interesting. I, I, it's, so it's critical to have that space. I love that example. Not only her willingness to engage people in dialogue after the fact on, you know, what is, what is not appropriate as far as reaching out, but also modeling the right kind of work-life balance. And I always think it, it is interesting how, when we look at it from a succession planning standpoint, that if I want to develop people that ultimately are going to move into my role or serve the organization in a greater capacity, that you know we want people to see who are direct reports uh, as someone who has work-life balance. Because if the next step up is to be an executive who has no life, you know that's not that's not, <laughs> that's not really very motivating for a lot of people. Like, oh gosh, you know, I'd love to be able to move into that role and really have no work-life balance at all. And so, uh, it, it is yeah, interesting that that that's something that people miss often. Yeah, and and that is reality. When you get into those positions, you you basically your the company is your life. Um, and, and it's easier to manage now because of the smartphone, because you can be other places that does make it easier, but you still have the constant connectivity. And it's a matter of really for her, it's a matter of realizing that, that basically she, she's paid for a different level of, of constant connectivity than her direct reports are. Um, it's part of her job and not so much theirs. And 
she feels that as their manager, she, she really has an obligation to help them learn how to manage this mm. so that they can grow into being the leader she sees them as being. I love it. Great example. Thank you so much for sharing that. And and speaking of resources, um, one of the things that I want to make people aware of, and I know that CCL has some wonderful resources that are available online uh, that leaders can get access to. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could take a moment just to tell us a little bit about what is available online at the website and what's the best way for people to tap into some of the wisdom and resources from CCL in addition to this article. Yeah, so if you go to ccl.org, um, there's all sorts of resources you can find there. There are white papers. I think there may be webinars. There may be podcasts. Um, but we have lots and lots of things that are available to people that they can download um, to help with their own development, their own knowledge growth. Uh, there's also a blog that people can pay attention to where we talk about um things that leaders are doing, things that leaders can learn, um, new information that we're gathering. Uh, there are also, a, we've written lots of books, lots of workbooks, lots of what are called guidebooks, which are smaller, more more practical, um, sort of more specifically practical um, applications of different types of information. So there's a lot there that you can go look at uh, that will help with your own development. And I love that CCL is a nonprofit and that the mission of the organization is really just to help leaders improve. And so I think it's going to be a wonderful resource for our community of listeners uh, to tap into if they haven't already. And, uh, and also, you know, thank you to those who have already said, you know, great things about CCL and reached out to me as well. I just, uh, I just think you, you all are doing wonderful work out there and it's, uh, it's so great to be able to, uh, to dialogue about uh, something that's really important. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Jennifer Deal is the author of the article, Always On, Never Done, from the Center for Creative Leadership. She is a senior research scientist there. And uh, thanks, Jennifer, for being here. I hope this conversation has challenged you to think a little differently about your connectedness and how you may make different choices that will serve you, but just as importantly, if not more so, serve the people you lead as well. And I would love to hear your comments and your response to this question. What have you seen a leader do to encourage quality connections to the workplace? If you have a thought on that that you think would be of value to the community, I would love it if you take a moment to go over to the show notes for this episode and uh, answer that question. Again, what have you seen a leader do to encourage quality connections to the workplace? And the best way to do that is to go to coachingforleaders.com slash 132. That'll take you right to the notes for this episode. And of course, if you have any comments, questions, or feedback about this show or the show in general or questions for a future episode, you can always go to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback, or you can reach out to me directly at 949-38-LEARN. A reminder that the next Q&A episode is coming up in three weeks. That's going to be on episode number 135. And the topic for that Q&A episode is going to be training. So anything related to training, uh, the types of training you should receive, how you conduct training for others, what kind of thinking you should do about uh, how you administer training, um, maybe how to train, whatever it's it's around training, it is fair game. And even if it's you know on the line of being on training, 
uh, send in your question anyway. I already have a bunch of questions uh, already, but there is still room for more questions. And if you'd like your question to be considered, coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. And if you want to record a question, that way I can use your question right on the air. I always prefer that. And the direct link for that is coachingforleaders.com slash speak. But you can also get to there from the feedback page too. Hey, a big thank you this week to those of you who subscribe to the weekly update. Jamie Lavery, Marcel Froyo, Davinder Singh, Stefan Gostick, Danielle Chen, Anton Meyer, Patrick Ebright, Paola Lopez-Zarnando, I hope I said that right, Nathan Cam, Michael Cadret, uh, Slava Barber, Jay Washington, and Rick Temestini. Thank you so much to all of you for subscribing to the weekly update. I publish an email each Wednesday that will give you a booster shot between the shows on how to lead better and give you some actionable advice on how to improve your communication, human relations, or personal productivity. Plus, you're going to get the notes from this episode, uh, the links we mentioned, the links to to Jennifer's article if you'd like to get into more depth on that. And if you'd like to get that as well in your inbox each week, just go to coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe, and you'll also get all of the notes going forward every Wednesday for future episodes as well, plus instant access to my video overview and the downloadable guide on the 10 leadership books that will help you get better results from others. And if you haven't checked that out already, please do. I think you'll find it a great resource for your ongoing professional development. Hey, a quote I came across this week that I found very relevant to this topic is from E.E. Cummings. E.E. Cummings said, to be nobody but yourself in a world which is doing its best night and day to make you like everybody else means to fight the hardest battle which any human being can fight and never stop fighting. My friends, it is a noisy world out there and we're all very connected. I hope that you'll take some of our conversation today to improve the quality of your connections and the connections of the people you influence so that you can have better results in the work you do. Have a great week and I'll talk to you next week. Take care.